Welcome back to Revolution and Ideology. I'm Jared. I'm Nick. And we are back on our deep dive, um, looking at the apocalypse and the end of the world. Although today, um, we're going to switch things up and talk a little bit about utopia rather than dystopia. Or perhaps uh, I'd better couch this in the fact that we're going to talk about the reflexive relationship between utopias and dystopias. And the sourcing we're using is a book called The End of the World, Apocalypse and Its Aftermath in Western Culture. Um, and specifically, we're going to be looking at one of the last chapters in there. It's called Dying of Happiness, Utopia at the End of This World. Our author is Maria uh, Manuel Lisboa, and she is a professor of Portuguese literature and culture at Cambridge, and she published this back in 2011. Um, and she immediately kind of starts off the beginning of this, this chapter um, discussing what she's going to try and accomplish. She says in this chapter, the rise of dictatorships following apocalypse will be discussed, including the implementation of programmatic genocide as a means of speeding up the selection of the fittest in a newly formed world. The reason this is important is because um, it's kind of subversive in a way. You look at the chapter title, which is what drew us to it at first. We spent you know weeks and weeks talking about dystopias and zombies and nuclear fallouts and giant monsters and all kinds of crap. And now, oh, utopia. Is there a better result that we can hope for? And then immediately you get hit in this face with this idea that, oh man, she's, she's going to be using examples that talk about genocide. So there's a little bit of subversion here. So that's why I, I kind of crafted the intro are we really going to be talking about utopias or are utopias a product of our understanding of dystopia? Before I ask Nick that question, I want to get to the next part where she also lays out how she's going to do this. She goes on to say that this chapter discusses literature of utopia, the ways in which science fiction in conjunction with philosophical and political thought leads to the counterintuitive possibility that the end of the world might be brought about not by global destruction, but as a consequence of the establishment of utopia in a variety of different formulations. Wider implications of the idea of utopia, the measures taken to establish it, and the effects of its permanence in the long term will be discussed in relations to authors like Plato, Thomas More, H.G. Wells, E.M. Forrester, Aldous Huxley, Huxley, and Julian Barnes. Essentially, like this work seems to really ask the question, after the apocalypse, even for those of us that kind of want a clean slate, which is a lot of us, um, is utopia even possible. And before we dig into some of her examples, um, what do you think, Nick? Is utopia possible? Well, okay. First, that maybe that's, that's a big question. We're going to be here yeah, a while. That's the, question, that's the last question I should have asked. <laughs> so yeah, no, I, but like, I guess what are your, what are your thoughts? Let's, here's the first question. Do you think there's a reflexive relationship between our understanding of utopia and dystopia? Not like whether it's, there's no reality here, just our mm -hmm. understandings of them. And I guess, is a, is a utopia even possible? And we'll revisit these questions at the end. But before we dig into her examples, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, her she talks a little bit, which we'll get to, about the thesis-antithesis type relationship between mm -hmm. dystopia and utopia, right? So as much as this is about utopia, she's really here talking about dystopia and kind of the perhaps, right, apocalyptic function of utopia, which I think is really what's interesting here. Okay. Let's start with some, like laying some things out. Where does the idea of utopia come from in Western thought? Well, obviously it comes from Thomas More's actual utopia, um, which he wrote about all the way back in the early 16th century. Basically his utopia, Thomas More, it's super famous, but basically, and there is a debate that Thomas, or Thomas, <laughs> that Nick's going to talk about here about like if, if, if Thomas More was actually serious in his discussion of utopia or whether it was not a satire. But here are some chief 
things that Thomas More in the 1500s was talking about regarding the perfect world. First, it had to take place back then in what they called the new world. Obviously, it's a problematic term now since people live there. But regardless, it took place in the Americas. That was the geography there. The societies were based on collectivism. There was no private property. Um, in terms of the economy, it was mostly uh, based on mutual aid. Didn't seem like there was a lot of focus on currency. It was kind of a, a 1500s version of a welfare state where there, everybody's like basic needs were met. There was no war. Um, there was a lot of religious pluralism, though, as an aside, um, atheism wasn't really that well received, but there was religious pluralism. There was still some sort of control over like the procreative process, which again is not necessarily unique to utop utopias or dystopias. That's taking place throughout actual history time and time again. Unfortunately, um, the one like bad mark on this understanding of utopia in the 1500s is that um, Thomas More still outlined the need for a slave-based um, labor system. Um, however, it was not racially defined. Still, this is kind of problematic. Um, in common usage, the term utopia invented by Thomas More has come to mean a place of perfection. Etymologically, however, it involves an inbuilt ambiguity, which is more the central preoccupation at the heart of the ongoing discussion. More's term puns on the Greek autopo, no place, and utopo, good place. It may be wise to bear in mind More's implied caveat that the perfect place may be nowhere, no place, either because it does not exist or because, as discussed in a prior chapter, the new beginning ultimately may lead back to whatever it ha was that preceded Apocalypse with no significant change. I should have mentioned that the second part there is Lisboa's quote, not mine. Um, but anything you want to add on Thomas More's understanding, um, not even understanding, framing of what utopia is for Western philosophy? Anything you want to add? No, I mean, it's a complicated conversation to have because scholarship is like split 50-50 of whether Moore published this work in support of a sort of socialistic ideology, right, in support of this vision of utopia, or if he published it as a critique of, you know, this could never work in real life, which is why the slavery th thing is tough to talk about because did he actually think slavery was a positive thing in this utopic world? Or was he saying, you know, He's putting it in there as, you know, a, a critique of this imagined, you know, utopia. I don't know. It's complicated. Well, it sets the stage well for the four examples that um, Lisboa uses. She uses more than four, but I'm going to focus on the first four she mentions. And then the other ones are only kind of sprinkled in as, as small examples. But these first four are important because they all also kind of in some ways present what a perfect future might look like for all of us. But... But again, with some huge like caveats, there's always going to be like this major like negative aspect there that we're going to have to overcome. And in some ways, the negative aspect is so large that these utopias in some ways look kind of dystopian from different lenses. So that's 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 Thomas More kind of sets the stage well for these. So, <clears throat> excuse me. Without further ado, the first one that she uses is quite famous. It's um, from Thomas Hobbes and his um, kind of groundbreaking work, Leviathan, or The Matter, Form, and Power of a Commonwealth, Ecclesiastical and Civil. I definitely like the title Leviathan much more than that longer title, um, <laughs> which of course came out in 1651. Now, while Hobbes and Leviathan likely deserve, like again, their own standalone episode, which, which we might be putting together, or I think Nick may already have one that's kind of similar. Um, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, we already have a short video. I think it's 15 minutes, less than 20 minutes. I use it in a class I teach on the sociology of the state. Um, yeah. I have a short, super short lecture on Leviathan. So we'll, we'll have that 
yeah, let's put that out there. Um, we, it wasn't public before, but we might as well just make it public now because the world needs to know about Thomas Hobbes. No. Um, okay. God, if I'm uh, the only person teaching the world about Thomas Hobbes, then we have problems. Hey, man. Well, I mean, Thomas Hobbes had problems. We're not fans. I'm not a fan. I don't know <laughs> if you are. I did. Yeah, that dude had problems. No. Okay, anyway. All right. We should also mention that the central thesis of Leviathan is that humans are flawed and require a strong, absolute authority in which they serve under, that's my infinite emphasis, a social contract. Um, this is important because later on, later philosophers in 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 the West would kind of like soften this idea of the social contract a little bit. Of course, most notably John Locke and um, uh, Rousseau. They're still about the social contract, but rather than it being kind of like an under a social contract, there's more a reciprocal contract between leadership and um, and civil society. Leviathan was written during the English Civil War, so that might have framed um, Hobbes's, um, what's the word I'm looking for, pessimism towards the human condition. Um, but he did choose his title based on the ancient biblical serpent that lived under, under the sea and represented literal chaos. And not only did this serpent that lived under the sea represent chaos, it punished those specifically guilty of the sin of envy. And I think punishing those guilty of the sin of envy is what motivated Hobbes to use this um, to use this metaphor to title his work. Why might envy figure in here, Nick? What do you think? In terms of like critiquing the human condition and our need to be controlled. Yeah, I mean, Hobbes' work is most famous for his hypothetical, you know, man in the state of nature, you know, and I can't remember the exact quote, I'll paraphrase, right? It's like, life is short, brutish, and whatever, constant conflict, etc. right? That's Hobbes' vision of what men were like before civilization, before the Commonwealth, you know? Yeah, so Hobbes, um, Hobbes is interesting. He's an authority. Essentially, Leviathan is is about creating authoritarianism, and that might be utopic to some. Lisboa argues that Hobbes also has influence on political thought that has endured since the 17th century and is reflected in much of the utopian and dystopian literature to be discussed in the rest of her examples, in particular, the belief in the causal link between rational, moral, and political decision-making and self-interest, which is a perfect segue to get to her next example. She mentions a sort of spectrum here, ranging from like Hobbes' endorsement of governmental autocracy to absolute individualism of, and these are her terms, mainly right-wing libertarian factions, which gives us, again, the segue to the second example, this idea of a rational egoism that can be accomplished in a dystopian society to create utopia. And that comes to us from Ayn Rand, our Ayn Rand. Um, her work, Atlas Shrugged, most of our listeners are going to be familiar with it from 1957. Um, most of our listeners we're willing to bet are probably not fans of that work. Um, and, and neither are, are we, well, at least I'm not, I don't know, Nick thoughts on Atlas Shrugged. Um, nope. yeah. Um, terrible. Okay. This, I guess I should caveat, if you're just purely looking at it as a work of fiction, like, cool, it's a neat story, I guess. But as like that's not how Rand intended it by any means. It's clearly an ideological propaganda machine. Yeah, that's a, that, it's, it's, it's meant to socialize, clearly, um, and makes a whole host of ludicrous assumptions about human nature and our desires and things along those lines. Not unlike, actually, Thomas Hobbes did. I guess the difference for for me is that Thomas Hobbes was actually living through like literal chaos during the English Civil Wars and and, and Rand was a very privileged woman. Yeah, whatever. Well, and plus she had the luxury of like Yeah. I always give Hobbes a pass, right? When I teach about Hobbes and et cetera, yeah. I say like 
like anthropology and archaeology and like sociology and like all of these things literally didn't exist in 1651 when he's writing. Yeah. So like he's making this up, right? His yeah. is pure mm-hmm. philosophy. Rand yeah. had the luxury of all of those things existed. She knew better, right? And still wrote this, um, this, this ridiculous, uh, I don't know, whatever, uh, yeah, dumpster fire of a book. Fine. Whatever. Our, our bias aside, let, let's just get into what she's talking about. The new world likely doesn't require much um, that she paints from our description. We're assuming most of you are at least vaguely aware of Atlas Shrugged. Um, but for those that aren't aware, it's it's essentially her treatise via fiction on the merits of individualism, extremely limited governance, and unfettered capitalism. In some, um, it's hundreds and hundreds of painful pages painting business innovators and the elites as oppressed in her dystopian society and shackled by the state and by those that are less than. They're shackled on both sides. The state that is above them keeps them from, of course, following their dreams and making as much money as possible or whatever, or they're innovating as much as they can. Meanwhile, the fact that many of their their ideas or resources, perhaps it's inferred, um, are being redistributed in some sort of way to those that are on the lower end of the social hierarchy. That's also a problem that is shackling these movers and shakers in society. Basically, the the book itself and, and the films that are based off it always conclude with a strike by these intellectually or genetically elite individuals. They go on strike and because they go on strike, the whole society collapses, especially the government. And these rugged individuals can have their futuristic Wild West laissez-faire society where they're calling the shots and they're not answerable to any sort of personal responsibility for others, just their own individual desires. Um, And again, going back to it, it's kind of an argument for rational egoism. Anything you'd like to add? Nope. So in this case, in this specific case, referring back to like our deep dive here, the argument is that Rand paints a dystopian society so that she can then argue for what the utopian society looks like. So most of the book takes place in a dystopia, only the idea is that that dystopia will eventually flip to a utopia, right? Whereas Mm -hmm. with Hobbes, we're still a little bit like the utopia is already kind of being outlined through his understanding of the civil wars and transferring that philosophy into the idea of the Leviathan. And in this case, I guess I should have added with Hobbes, if we want to go back in for just a second, the Leviathan is like, it's, it's, it's a, um, it's a metaphor for the people. So that <laughs> this monster, this monster that is punishing people, it's the people, like the people themselves are punishing those that are above. Does that make sense? So it's kind of similar to Rand in that way. All right. Also, I think right. that we I was confused by Lisboa's inclusion of the Leviathan because she talks purely about fiction except for Hobbes's Leviathan, which didn't yeah. really make sense to me. I don't know how it fits in here, but that's okay. I mean, maybe it's inferred that since he didn't have the same, I don't know, positive positivist background of these later writers and didn't have a better understanding of history and sociology and anthropology and stuff. I mean, he's writing it, not as, he's not writing it as fiction, but maybe that's, I don't know, maybe that's the rationale. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I'm just trying to throw out, throw out some ideas here. Okay. So the third example in terms of this literature um, regarding utopian and dystopian relationships comes to us from Aldous Huxley um, and his work, Brave New World, um, dating back to 1932. 
Um, Huxley's vision is clearly critical of current conditions, if not forewarning, of what could possibly come next on our current trajectory. Though it certainly paints some things in a positive light, such as global peace, harmony, and distribution of all basic requirements for life. That said, the world is stratified into five different castes in the Brave New World, and those are also then separated into subcasts. Um, and the system doesn't offer a lot of social mobility. Reproduction, indoctrination, and caste distribution is all handled by a um, entity called the world state. And most of the population is drugged to an extent as well. The drug's called Soma for those are, that are curious. I mean, it's an interesting an interesting read. I, I, I won't lie and say I've read it cover to cover, but I've read enough little bits and pieces. Um, it's interesting. I actually read it pretty recently, I think last year or something. Oh, did you? Mm -hmm. Um, those that cannot be assimilated into the brave new world are placed on reserves, which again, it could be a critique on what took place during the colonial processes or things along those lines. But also it's kind of like, it's also a cautionary tale. So is it really a utopia? That's the question. Like I'm, I'm kind of left asking anyway, since you've read it more recently than I have, what do you want to add to this description of Brave New World by Aldous Huxley? I mean, I don't think there's anything to add. I think that you're right, and it fits here with Lisboa's sort of overarching context of this chapter is, is it dystopic or is it utopic, right? It's a messy, complex thing. You know? And it, we'll keep coming back to this question, is utopia even possible given these realities? Um, and these, excuse me, these aren't realities. These are all works of fiction. Well, I mean, I guess except for Hobbes, but these are all like, I mean, even in that case, right, we have these are thought exercises. So right. all we have to go on are our imaginations in this case. These are not real world case studies that we can use like I do in my history classes, right? So, but I think they're important. And I guess I, I'm probably letting the cat out of the bag when we get to the conclusion here. Even as thought exercises, the fact that the thought exercises are so limited, what does that say about humanity's possibilities? Mm -hmm. Keep that in the back of your mind when we get to the conclusion. All right. Fourth example here comes to us from Ira Levin. Um, and his work, The Perfect Day, which I was wholly unfamiliar with. I, I'm familiar with the other three, but this this one I'd never read or he actually even heard about, but it was um, written back in 1970. It's lesser known than the others. This world resembles the others in a few ways to include central authority, but in this case, it's completely run by a supercomputer called Uni. Uni maintains the equilibrium of society, politics, economics, etc., through draconian control over all individuals within what comes to be called the and it's eugenically created the family. People are euthanized at the age of 62, but eventually a hero, Chip, rises up and destroys the system, opening the opportunity for something after. I found this interesting for a couple of reasons. Again, A, it's kind of a dystopia that it opens up the possibility for a utopia because of a great hero, and now we're to Joseph Campbell's hero's journey, but regardless. I also am kind of surprised I'd never heard of this perfect day because of the similarity it kind of has with the matrix i don't know mm -hmm. any thoughts there no i absolutely had never heard of it either okay while all four of these examples are the most detailed in and in, in lisboa's work here there are other allusions to some other well-known examples throughout that she's going to mention that so just so our, our listeners know um, this is a pretty complete um, list of sources that she uses. 1984 by George Orwell. Children of Men is referenced, so it gets even a little bit more modern in that regard. There's also a couple of other sources I've never even heard of, just like with The Perfect Day. There was this one called Dr. Blood Money. was completely unfamiliar with that, but that's also sourced as, again, a representative of this utopic-dystopic relationship. Okay. 
Lisboa goes on to ask essentially the question, why bother with a utopia though? I mean, like the endings are inevitable. Um, and then she has a section in the chapter called basically, can we even be happy? Can we be happy? Is there anything better? Um, and we're just not sure. In her words, I think there's some important thoughts here that I want Nick's commentary on. She says, the power and desire to define utopia, a good place, and to oppose it globally requires the identification of its antithesis, a dystopia, a place of wretchedness, so as to avoid it. Well, I I actually don't know that I need Nick's comment there, but I want to open it up. Um, What do you think she's alluding to here? That sentence has a lot built into it, right? So it's like... First off, utopia is relative, right? One person's utopia is another person's dystopia. The second is we can't envision a utopia unless we have a, I don't want to say contrasting, but that's fine, dystopia, right? There has to be some version of what is bad in order for us to imagine and get to a place, at least in fiction, right, of something good, and maybe in real life, right? That's a whole other conversation. So there's a lot here, right? And she talks about thesis, antithesis, et cetera, right? If we're going to have utopia, we have to have its antithesis, dystopia. We have to have two, otherwise they lose all meaning. One of them's not dystopic and one of them's not utopic. So in every story that we're talking about, including Hobbes, right? Mm -hmm. He talks about man in the state of nature and then the Leviathan is the antithesis to that, right? The Commonwealth. Um, The same is true for all the other examples, right? We have, you know, Rand's dystopic, it's like normal society and the utopic, <laughs> right? The utopic Galt's Gulch, right? And like the, the rampant capitalism and yeah, individualism. You want to, yeah, I mean, that's interesting though. You want to see what unfettered capitalism and like, no, like, mm-hmm. like go, go to any like warlord run country. Like, is that what she's looking for? But anyway, whatever. Yeah. But that's utopia to some, right? And I think that's part of the conversation, right? There's always going to be like, there's going to be a lot of subjectivity here. Mm-hmm. Okay. No, that's it. Yeah. In the end, and again, this is Lisboa, in the end, a variety of different circumstances may result in the large-scale collapse of social structures and human communities as narrated in film and fiction. Natural disasters or acts of gods or human error, unforeseen developments in scientific, military, demographic activity, or intentional agency like chemical, biological, and nuclear warfare, all of these things could lead to the end of the world. Again, in her words, post-apocalypse, however, and irrespective of the original trigger, certain common patterns tend to emerge and structure the emerging survival scenarios. The desire to rebuild the world based on the principle of necessary change, the awareness of the dangers of repetition, and paradoxically, the near certainty that repetition will not only prove unavoidable, but in the emerging new status quo, it will exaggerate the factors that resulted in the cataclysm in the first place. Intellectual hubris, non-consensual community organization, belligerent intergroup relations, and the Pollyannesque inability to accept the need for envisaging a forestalling worst case scenario. So that was a really long way of saying is that even in these utopias, oftentimes as we're imagining them in literature and, 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 and film, is that oftentimes we recreate the problems that already exist and except sometimes they're even worse. What do you think of that? Yeah, I fully agree. And I think that it's purely a function of the fact that we have a really hard time imagining, A, what would happen after the end of the status quo, and B, what a perfect society would look like. Both of those things, right? 
Another interesting common theme that is brought up in in this selection that we're um, we dove into is that in these dystopian utopias or utopian dystopias, whatever you prefer, one of the common things that is used to quote unquote solve problems that exist either today or because of whatever brought on the end of the world is the idea of a homogeneity. In other words, that everyone eventually becomes the same. And we can argue that this is either arguing for that in some sort of like grandiose eugenics-based assimilation program, or we can also argue that maybe these authors had some sort of critique given the context they were writing in of of something important, some big scary other they had at the time. Maybe if it was written during the Cold War, they were scared of communism. Or maybe if it was written during the early industrial era, they were scared of the all of the new emerging technologies. Or maybe if it was written more recently, they're scared of the homogeneity that is brought on by mass consumption um, and unfettered, well, not unfettered in this case, um, neoliberal capitalism, I should say. Um, this seems to be the common theme. Any thoughts on why all of these dystopian utopias or utopian dystopias tend to have homogeneity as a common theme? I don't know. When I was reading this and thinking about it, all I could think of is how, I mean, and this is really common, right? Not even just to like apocalyptic or utopic fiction, but when people think about how to make society better, for some reason, it's really common for people to say we need to eliminate all the differences between us, right? And then only then will we be happy. I mean, it's such an immature and like nonsensical statement, right? Mm-hmm. We don't need to eliminate the differences. We need to value the differences. And that's such like, it's a very simple concept to think about, but it's such a sh- seismic shift between those two ideas, right? One is like, we need to eliminate all the differences between us. And the other is we need to appreciate and value all the differences between us. One is genocide and one is, you know, pluralism. Right. I'm always reminded at this point by my favorite, one of my favorite quotes by uh, a guy we've talked a lot about on this channel in, in history, Subcomandante Marcos, but this idea of a world in which many worlds exist, these utopias all are kind of absent of that, which is kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Um Lisboa herself adds on this point that the elimination of difference is to a greater or lesser extent the prerequisite of most utopian visions, and it is through this that their potential for autocracy becomes becomes most clearly manifest. So she argues that there's also a a tertiary um, thing that takes place in this literature um, or film that that homogeneity also leads to the idea of either an, a supercomputer that runs the world or the world state or whatever it was called in Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. Like that, mm-hmm. that, that leads to um, control. Okay. Yeah. I mean, to in these narratives to enforce the homogeneity, there has to be some superior being, like you said, whether that's the computer or some totalitarian government or some, you know, something, technology or whatever that's required in all of these versions. The Commonwealth for Hobbes, you know. Right. And the question Although I... I guess I, I should be clear. Hobbes doesn't specifically... His goal isn't necessarily homogeneity, I guess. No. Well, but I mean, this is the 1500s. I'm sure if you yeah. asked him interesting questions about like whatever um, people in, in, in the new world or something, he would probably have some very colorful things to say about their distinction. <laughs> but regardless, right. um, context matters. So... I, this brought up a question to me. Is the impossibility of this ever happening part of the appeal here, um, regardless of what the um, underlying motivations of these writers is? In Rand's case, we could argue that it is basically to critique modern society and to champion 
um, her wildly selfish political beliefs. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I, like, regardless of what her motivation is, is that impossibility the appeal here? Whether we're thinking of these as cautionary tales or setups to champion ideologies and political views, I mean, is that? I mean. I don't know. I guess I was going to, you know what, never mind. I was going to wait for the conclusion for this, but I'll just say it now. Like in our, our class on resistance revolution, one of the things that we used to teach um, was that if you're going to have a successful social movement of any kind, you need a vision of tomorrow, right? Something that is kind of like romanticized and might not even be fully possible, but gives people hope. Is that some of the effect we see going on here? I mean, I think that's definitely part of it. And we talked about in the past, right? This idea of the fantasy of disaster and how it fulfills our fantasies of destruction and fantasies of all of these things, but we know that it's not possible in real life, right? Like you said, you know, we, we use the Independence Day example, right? And we, when we watched it, the White House explode on the television, it lived through our fantasy of, you know, all these kinds of things, right? As just one example. So I think there's definitely something to that. And it's like, yeah, it fulfills, you know, Ayn Rand's narrative fulfills the fantasy of every individualist libertarian capitalist, right? And Hobbes is... Not, I was going to say, but is it really their fantasy? They just think it's their fantasy because it's an antithesis to something they're unhappy about now. I don't know. Well, I mean, that's the key of a fantasy, right? A fantasy yeah, is yeah, never yeah. real. You know, it's always got it. You have to have real life in order for it to be a fantasy. You know what I mean? Those two things have a dialectical relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Based on this, another key section that, that that kind of hints at this is these fantasies, sometimes when they become quote unquote realities, none of these become realities because we're all looking at, again, works of fiction or thought exercises here. But regardless, we still aren't happy. And that's even revealed in our imagination as we're writing these out or consuming the writing of others, right? So what she basically, Lisboa argues, why can't you just be happy? She argues that even unproblematic utopic visions, and she doesn't use this example, but the one that came to mind for me was the giver, even mm-hmm. unproblematic utopic visions that might not have slavery or something like that often collapse in literature and film since they grow stale. Is this insinuating that oppression or quote unquote drama or insert any other toxic thing here are the spice of life? What do you think of that? Essentially, that's what I'm asking Nick. Um, by this reckoning, if all longing differently defined in each scenario is satisfied, desire becomes meaningless, but so therefore does existence itself. So again, let me repeat the question in a, in a more clear way to Nick. Is... I mean, do we just, God, I hate the word, but whatever. I'm just going to say it. Do we just want problems? Do we need problems to solve? And if there are no problems to solve, do we give up our will to kind of like exist? What do you think? Well, I think, I don't think we have to frame it as problems, right? Like you have oppression in here, et cetera, drama or other toxic thing, right? I don't think it has to be toxic. And she specifically uses the word desire, which is really common, right? We've all heard of, you know, Freud and Lacan and all Mm -hmm. of these people talk about desire, right? So can we get rid of oppression? Maybe, right? Can we get rid of drama? Maybe, right? Can we get rid of desire? That's a whole like can of worms. And I'm not sure the answer to that, but her fundamental argument is if we would get rid of all desire, I mean, she says it right here, right? Quote, she says, if all longing is satisfied, desire becomes meaningless, but so therefore does existence itself, right? I mean, that's her claim. Yeah. I don't know that I disagree with that, but we can't really have a conversation, I think, without bringing in Hegel and Freud and Lacan and probably other, you know, psychologists and so forth. My personal stance is that, yes, we can never 
desire is a cornerstone of human consciousness and existence. We're insatiable. I made that face, by the way, because of the back-to-back episodes, or maybe it wasn't back-to-back, just the one episode we did on Buddhism and uh, the ability mm-hmm. to overcome desire. So I was like, well, you know, a few people have managed it. I don't know if they achieved their utopia, though, by doing so. That's the question, right? But people... But I mean, here's... I don't think that they it's very individual. It, it's not right? social. What? I don't think anyone's ever achieved a lack of desire because we are physical beings. You desire food, you desire water, you desire shelter, and those never go away. Right. Yeah, maybe we need to revisit that episode. We'll reevaluate it. Um, with who is on that? Yana. Yeah, we can. Mm -hmm. All right. Anyway, okay. Moving on, though. So here's the thing. Um, Lisboa goes on to also propose that above all the above that she has been discussed and and even in the examples may be impossible anyway. Perfection is an impossibility that ultimately reveals. And I quote, not only that perfection is not attainable, but that when you think you have attained it, what awaits is instead the inevitable discovery that the world is even more flawed than might have been feared. And I like that thought. I think that I think it's actually very well articulated that this idea that there is no such thing as a perfect world and even what we consider to be perfect actually reveals itself to be even more flawed. My knee jerk thoughts to that as are reminded me, of course, on a much smaller scale. We're not talking now complete ends of the world or wholesale new societies, they're on a much smaller scale. Is there very generic discourse that we have in our modern society in most technological improvements under our dominant discourses, whether those are industrialism or positivism or capitalism, um, continue to make our lives better? Like I'm always reminded of this idea that every new invention or every new improvement to inventions or whatever makes our lives easier but in, and again, this is where my bias comes in. In many cases, they actually exacerbate already existing problems or create wholly new ones that another new product or new invention is going to have to solve. And you have this never ending vicious cycle. Um, I'm also reminded a little bit, of course, of, of one of our favorite guys, Marcuse here and what he says in One Dimensional, uh, One Dimensional Man. But here's the thing. When we think about some examples like cars or cell phones or whatever, like they're solving problems that exist then, but create a whole host of new problems that are oftentimes, especially in the case of the automobile, create problems bigger than the ones they solved, right? Like whatever it might be, right? Everything from mm-hmm. production to all that other stuff. You know where I'm going with this. I've, I've bitched mm-hmm. about cars on this channel time and time again. But regardless, what are your thoughts on that? Maybe not even my knee-jerk reaction, which obviously takes us on a tangent, but her idea about the idea of impossible perfection. And this is where she's getting to her main thesis of the chapter, uh, finally, I'll say, is that her idea is that it's not actually like, you know, nuclear war or some climate disaster or zombies, right? It's none of the normal precipitating events of the apocalypse that would bring about the end of the world, that actually it would be the achievement of utopia that would bring about the end of the world. And I have a term that I made up when we were, I was just now actually thinking about this, she doesn't use, but the idea of apocalyptic utopia, that if a utopia was ever actually achieved to like, you know, go along with what Lisboa is saying, where our desires no longer existed, that would be the end of the world. We would cease to exist, right? Life would be, uh, would have no meaning. Existence would have no meaning whatsoever. And we would conceivably cease to exist. Life as we know it would be over. I like that. 
So as we kind of draw this to a close, there are a couple of questions that came to my mind as we were, were, were talking our way through this. I don't know that they refer back to um, Lisboa's like central aims in this, that, that, that some of these ideas, these, these thought exercises will lead us towards beliefs in autocracy or dictatorships or things along those lines. Um, I do think it was actually useful for her to go through some utopic slash dystopian examples um, to talk about certain parts different moving parts, even if they don't necessarily come together in any concluding thought, different moving parts of our vision of dystopia and utopia, things like homogeneity or imperfection or desire. I think those were all very useful. But what it got me thinking about are two main questions. And we've touched upon them a little bit, but I want a little bit more here to kind of end this episode. Number one, for pop culture, because again, this is all fiction. We must stress this is all fiction or at best a thought exercise in the case of Hobbes. For pop culture, can we even imagine a true utopia for the sake of utopia and not as a setup for some sort of ulterior motive in the case of like Rand, her political beliefs, or in the case of Hobbes, perhaps like motivating um, some sort of uh, uh, end to his civil wars that he was experiencing, the English civil wars. Can we just imagine a utopia for the sake of a utopia? Is that even possible? Are our brains, socialized brains, even possible of that? What do you think? Well, no, not at all, because like what you just said is true, right? Our brain doesn't exist separate and apart from its social socialization, right? We're all socialized into the world in which we live. So can we imagine something that would be utopic? Like, no, because we exist in whatever society in which we exist. We're incapable. We don't exist outside of ideology, right? That's not possible, which is one of like Marcuse's main conclusions in mm -hmm. One Dimensional Man that we talked about, you know? Excellent. It also gets me thinking about the other thing that we've talked about before on this pod and in class, Thomas Kuhn's idea of paradigm shift. We can't mm -hmm. really actually foresee it, right? That idea. He's talking about, of course, scientific revolutions at that point, but it's still the same the same notion, right? Because of the context in which we were raised and lived. Which is why like, you know, Frederick Jameson's quote has become so famous at this point, which isn't the actual quote, but it's a paraphrase, right? That it's easier to imagine the end of the world than to imagine the end of capitalism because we're so, capitalism mm -hmm. has it's so pervasive in every single aspect of our lives that we can't even imagine life without it. We can, we can imagine the end of the world before we can imagine what life would be like without it. So then that brings up that second question, um, which is kind of not a nice question, but due to our limitations in our imagination because of the socialization um, and the hegemony of the dominant discourses of our day and age, does this even mean anything for humanity's actual tra trajectory? So just because we can't imagine it in fiction and we can't even like, you know, make it up as we go along, I mean, does this mean anything? Like, I mean, what are your thoughts? Does this have any bearing on what actually might happen to us as a species or the Earth? Well, I mean, not only can we not imagine it, but even if we could, we wouldn't be able to agree on it, which is like the most depressing thing, right? So uh, there's two problems, right? Yeah, we probably can't imagine it anyways, but even if we could, there would be, you know, infinite numbers of imagined utopias and we would go to war literally till the end of the earth to implement our version, which is like the most ironic thing, right? Utopia, the imperfect impossibility, or excuse me, I should say the perfect impossibility. Take us home, man. Thanks for watching. I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you liked it, please consider supporting us on Patreon, patreon.com slash revolution and ideology. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to our Patreon supporters. I'm Nick. I'm Jared. Later.